0: Can we agree that there's more to life than work? Sure, we've just spent an entire season speaking about how critical workplace experiences are to our quality of life and to the structuring of society. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that what we do isn't the only element of our lives that matters. Also, our work lives aren't stagnant or linear. Over the course of our careers, we'll change jobs, even industries, get hired and fired, experience frustrating moments and fulfilling ones. And while it is important to ensure that workplaces offer people psychological safety, equity, inclusion, belonging, accessibility, and diversity, it's also important to think about the moments when we're not at work. I'm Dara Lyons, and as an entrepreneur and a self-proclaimed workaholic, I sometimes get so caught up in my work that I forget that life is vast and that other elements of who I am and what I do are important. But in preparation for this episode, I've thought a lot about the value of living a well-rounded life while also being committed to ensuring that others' needs are met. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people and to thank indigenous people past, present and future for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is Episode 12 of Season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. This is Expanding Beyond the Workplace, Creating a Better World. When we consider that there are approximately 8 billion people in the world, more than 330 million people in the United States— It can be daunting to think about the prospect of working together. After all, we're so different. Having said that, every one of us has pursuits that drive us and needs that we're motivated to satisfy. And while there are a lot of schools of thought about how to define and categorize those needs for our purposes, I've decided to use a very basic framework, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. In 1943, Abraham Maslow introduced his theory of a hierarchy of needs in the journal Psychological Review, which he later expanded into what's known as the motivation model. Essentially, Maslow's theory is this. Human beings have a hierarchy of needs and motivations. At the bottom of that hierarchy are our most basic foundational needs, which we're motivated to meet in order to live. Once those needs are met, then we can safely move to the next level. I'll go into more detail about each of these levels later, but the basic premise is that as we rise up the levels of need, we realize more fulfillment, meaning, and satisfaction and become more equipped to give back to others. I believe that we can use the hierarchy model to demonstrate how honoring our needs and the needs of others can transform not just our workplaces, but our world.
1: Everybody wants to have this work life, their Instagram work life. Oh, I do this for two hours a day and then I make a bajillion dollars. It's all, no, you don't, no, you don't. So people get caught up in seeing what other people are posting and it's not real. And the majority of the world spends their life, like their work life is really like either in like misery or mediocrity. We get so like down on the fact that we're not doing stuff that lights us up all day, that then when we go home, we're not lit up anymore. We're exhausted. Right. And we're like Netflixing or we're not doing things that like build our spirits back up. So most of the people in the world do not have the luxury of just like, well, I'm just going to wait till I find a job that like lights me up you got to pay your bills. You need health insurance. You have keep a roof over your head. You have to eat. You have to feed people. You have to do all the things that we have to do, right? So look for things outside of your job that light you up. What about like good old fashioned hobbies that no one really, the majority of people don't look there anymore because they're so exhausted and beaten down from being miserable, doing a job all day that they're not loving. But what do you love to do? Like when you were a kid, what did you love to do? What let you up? And now can you spend five minutes doing it after work or maybe half of a Saturday or a few hours at night, whatever it
0: is? Start to find things that light you up and do them. It doesn't have to be your job. That was Deborah Deb Atella, the author of the international best-selling book, Is This Job My Jam? The guide for grown-ups who still don't know what they want to be. Deb is also a certified life coach, Reiki master, and meditation guide, and the host of the Atella Like It Is podcast. To her point about our work lives either being spent in misery or mediocrity, depending on the source, statistics show that between 60 and 85% of employees are not actively engaged at work. This means that 60 to 85% of people are spending their work hours feeling anywhere from bored and unfulfilled to hating what they do and where they work. There are a lot of reasons for this, but even if we address all of these issues, the need for improvement extends beyond our workplaces. And so while work has the potential to impact and or influence all of our needs and motivations, it's not the be-all and end-all. I'd like to spend this episode looking at the hierarchy of human needs and talking about how, in endeavoring to ensure that all people have all levels of their needs met, or at least have access to meet those needs, the better our individual and collective outcomes will be. Because, yes, we are diverse, but if we hope to make a difference, we have to ensure that everyone's basic needs are being met and that each person has the potential to achieve self-actualization.
2: diversity, making work safe for you and me, shoulder to shoulder we embark, invite the lightness and the dark, let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view, can we see each other?
0: First, I'm going to list the level of needs, and then we can spend the rest of this episode exploring each of them. One, biological and physiological needs, such as air, food, drink, shelter, etc. Two, safety needs, which is protection from elements, security, stability, and freedom from fear. Three, love and belonging needs, which includes things like friendship, intimacy, family, and relationships. 4. Esteem needs, which incorporates esteem for ourselves and the need to be accepted and valued by others. 5. Cognitive needs, such as the need for knowledge, understanding, and the expansion of our curiosity. 6. Aesthetic needs, which relates to the appreciation of beauty and creativity. 7. Self actualization needs, this is realizing our personal potential, self fulfillment, and growth. 8 transcendence needs, where we become motivated by values which transcend our personal selves. So this can have to do with spiritual experiences, giving back, leaving a legacy, or service to others. We'll start with number one, our most basic, most foundational needs, which are biological and physiological needs. In 2019, Gallup conducted a series of surveys throughout 142 countries to establish their Basic Needs Vulnerability Index, which examines people's level of access to basic resources. According to their findings, approximately one in seven of the world's adults, so approximately 750 million people, fall into the high-vulnerability category. This means that roughly 750 million people are struggling to afford food and or shelter, and they don't have friends or family to count on for assistance. There are innumerable studies demonstrating the high correlation between the inability to meet our basic survival requirements and negative outcomes, such as an increase in crime and suicidality and a decrease in mental health and life expectancy. If we're desperate for survival, we respond in desperate ways. Because of that, it is incumbent upon each of us to attempt to ensure that all of us have enough to meet our basic survival requirements. The second tier on Maslow's hierarchy are our safety and security needs. We absolutely need to feel safe. In fact, lack of safety has been shown to elevate cortisol levels and catapult us into what's commonly referred to as fight or flight. But in actuality, when faced with a real or perceived threat, human beings have three possible responses. Fight, flight, or freeze. We get scared and we move into survival mode, which is inherently, and of necessity, self-centered. And this is true whether the lack of safety is real or imagined. Stu Cranes is a mindset, success, and relationship coach who works with people individually and in groups to empower them into ownership of their lives. Before stepping into coaching, Stu had a successful career in sales and marketing within professional baseball, having the opportunity to work for the New York Yankees and the Atlanta Braves, as well as several affiliated minor league clubs. He is also the production and development assistant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Stu told me that self-centered fear is a catalyst into ego.
3: When we're viewing things through our ego, it tends to be me-centric. So the goals that are me, 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 very inwardly focused, don't tend to look externally for maybe lack of a better term, can create results thousand percent can create the actual checking of the box of getting something done. But from what I've seen, still kind of leaves this void of, okay, what's next? Like, I'm a millionaire now, but why am I lonely? Or I have amazing friends, amazing relationships, but I can barely pay my rent and I don't have two nickels to rub together. And I think that hyper-focus in check the boxes, it can get the results, but it actually causes divisiveness over time because it, especially in our society, it's at the expense of humility. It's at the expense of empathy. It's at the expense of the idea that we can all win, but people that want to build something that are actually focused on creating an impact and serving, like coming from a place of service and not what am I going to get? In this relationship with you, that's how you actually create community and that's how you actually create connection. If people took a service oriented mindset on a mass scale, I don't think we would have nearly the problems that we do in our world today. He's right. A
0: service-oriented mindset is required to ensure greater safety for individuals of all identities. But our fears get in the way of our commitment to higher ideals. We might fear not having enough or fear losing what we have. Unfortunately, there are those people who fear that those they perceive to be different than themselves are a threat, which makes them desperate to continue to perpetuate structural inequities. And when we combine these structural inequities with a lack of meaningful interactions across identities, the result is that many of America's more privileged citizens are operating under the false belief that their safety is reliant on keeping others down. But the data overwhelmingly shows the opposite. There is a correlative, even causal, relationship between lack of diversity and lack of physical safety. For example, lack of diversity within the police force has been shown to contribute to police brutality and lack of workplace diversity has been found to be a safety hazard, endangering lives and putting people at increased risks of injury. That said, it's important to acknowledge that the need for safety isn't purely physical, it's also psychological. You mentioned emotional safety. You've spoken about that. So there's emotional safety. There's sort of physical safety. There's psychological safety. There's all these different forms of, of safety. There's safety of bodily autonomy, safety, right? There, there's a number of different ways in which I think individual safety is, is essential and critical and also under threat at various moments and in various
4: ways. By safe, I mean free of attack, free from animus, from threat of violence, physical or otherwise, right? Because we can engage in violence in ways that are not physical towards other people. We're not talking about someone registering agreement with me. That's not what we're talking about. But that even if you don't agree, it is still safe. And so knowing that I can share the depths of who I am and how I really feel, and I can expose those tender places of myself And know that I'm not going to be attacked. That is what emotional safety is for me. Even if on the other end of this, you don't necessarily see things the way that I see things. Just knowing that it's okay for me to have this lived experience and to have this lens and to have this perception. Just knowing that it's okay for me to have it, whether you have it or not, is where safety lies.
0: You just heard a portion of my interview with AC Folks, the executive officer of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ plus sensitivity and transgender inclusion consulting firm. He and I spoke about the need to be able to safely bring ourselves forward, but AC was careful to make it clear that authenticity and self-exposure should never be requirements and that part of safety is having the capacity to exercise our own choice and autonomy.
4: I think it needs to be okay to show up. It needs to be okay. It needs to be safe. It needs to be acceptable, encouraged, celebrated, to show up, but it does not need to be mandated. I think that's where we miss the bar. When we look at someone and we say, show up as your authentic self, and by that I mean, expose all of yourself to these people, which may or may not be safe for you, which may or may not be something that you're ready to do, which may or may not be in keeping with what you view as success or even what you view as a comfortable environment. So it needs to be okay. It needs to be safe for people too, but it it doesn't need to be mandated.
0: Speaking of self-exposure, the third level of need and motivation on Maslow's hierarchy are our belonging and love needs. These needs include a wide range of relationships, from the relationships we might have with our colleagues and friends to the relationships we have with our family members, to the love shared between intimate partners. Emma Bloxberg fire Ovid, known as Emma BF, is a speaker, trainer, and leadership coach for women and non-binary folks in the technology industry. Emma has worked with hundreds of leaders to accelerate their careers, maximize their confidence, and amplify their impact. She told me that it's our relationships that enable us to realize our
5: power and potential. Brene Brown talks a lot about this, right, in her work on vulnerability. Like, there is kind of a threshold for connection and trust from which you can do pretty much anything.
0: As a coach who supports women and non-binary folks in the male-prevalent industry of tech, Emma understands that our ability to thrive is connected to our ability to belong. Alita Miranda-Wolf is the author of Cultures of Belonging, Building Inclusive Organizations That Last, and CEO and founder of Ethos, a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging firm dedicated to closing the opportunity gap for underrepresented and underserved groups. Here's what she had to say.
6: I've spent the last 10 years focused on belonging, and it's because I really agree with Roy Baumeister's work from the 1990s that to belong is to matter and is a basic psychological need for all human beings.
0: Belonging and significance are inextricably linked to diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. Depending on a person's identities and their access to certain spaces, they may be included or excluded based not on who they are, but on how they show up to others. But luckily, we're seeing movement away from America's good old boys culture. Sure, there may still be unequal access to power and privilege based on factors such as race, sexual orientation, and financial capital. But belonging isn't exclusive to any particular identity category. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health, The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who, at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com pages diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com pages diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real world, local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate certificate and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting Diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu ddp for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu/ddp to learn more. In previous episodes, I've spoken about how coming together around shared elements of identity has been incredibly helpful for many people through avenues such as employee resource groups. But there are a whole host of of outside-of-work opportunities to connect with people around a particular identity, experience, or interest. And many of these groups come together in ways that aren't what we might see modeled among those with the most social capital. For instance, Annelle Duarte told me about her experiences within women's circles and how empowering they've been because they've enabled her to connect with other women and because they don't utilize a hierarchical structure. And specializes in facilitating one-on-one and group practices under the trauma-sensitive and trauma-informed lenses. A trauma survivor herself, she holds safe space for participants to explore their internal experiences through yoga, body movement, meditation, the use of rituals and breathing techniques. Additionally, Annel's interests center in intersectional, social justice, and gender violence advocacy in order to dismantle systems of oppression and to create a world where it is possible to live our lives in dignity, free of patriarchal, colonial, and capitalist violence.
7: I arrived to these circles, to attending circles during my travels and all because I was trying to find this community and this drive. And then later on, I just became very motivated (laughs) to keep that. I mean, to, to pass it on to others and to keep finding that sense of community myself because you attract certain people that see something in you which sparks something in them and then it's just there and when we're in a women's circle and contrary to the normal ways of relating where there's hierarchy and someone is always like on top of the chain so to say but in these women's circles we're we're all sitting in the same level sharing from that very same level. I mean, there might be someone, the, the facilitator, which is moderating and holding space for everyone, but still the facilitator is, is sitting at the same level of the others. So that provides more of an authentic experience where we all can feel seen, heard, validated. All of our stories count I think there'd be so much value
0: in bringing that same non hierarchical energy into so many other places in society, like being able to really value a variety of different experiences and ways of seeing things and ways of communicating. And I wonder how possible it is to transfer that energy of equity into other spaces.
7: I wonder too, (laughs) I wonder too, but you know what? Under the trauma sensitive lens, that's um, very integral to our practice, you know, sharing the power and not keeping it for just a single person or just a single organization or yeah. And sharing that power so the other person can feel so comfortable in, in their own skin and comfortable like showing up and sharing from a place of authenticity.
0: One of the many reasons that marginalization and discrimination simultaneously harm individuals and the social collective is that they make it unsafe for people to show up authentically and belong as their full selves, or in many cases, to belong at all. This exclusion can manifest in a multitude of ways, from the subtle to the systemic. In my conversation with Cameron Footman, he told me about bumping up against barriers to belonging and navigating systems that are designed to exclude Indigenous people and practices. Cameron is the first voice of Indigipedia.ca, a lifelong entrepreneur and technology advocate, and the founder of Woodcrest Construction, a contracting company which specializes in welding and steel fabrication with a focus on heated furniture and art metal works. What haven't I asked you about, about your life or your work that would be important for people to know?
2: How the hell I made it this far?
5: <laughs> yeah, I know. How the hell did you make it this far?
2: I don't know. I, I really... Acknowledging the inequities and how the system stacked against you, and just you got to hit it twice as hard, use the system against them. I remember when I was like 18 or 20 years old without a driver's license, health card, birth certificate. I had my native status card. That's actually the only ID that, unfortunately, a lot of indigenous people even do have with not having like a solid family structure and stuff even something as getting your birth certificate so you can get a passport is like so daunting to a 20 year old kid with no idea of you know how the you know that western model work trying to like yeah buying my car for the first time right navigating just the the whole process of that nobody teaches you these things a lot of people unfortunately don't have the the support or the dumb will to, to go for it, right? Like we just put an offer on a house. If you're a young single man making a lot of money, right? It's just like you wouldn't even, this seems out of reach. It's like everybody just deserves it. It's not something reserved for other people, right? Just go get it. Yeah, buy, buy a car registering. It's hard, but it is possible.
0: Cameron told me that despite all the barriers that exist, he still believes that people can navigate through difficulties and realize their dreams. And despite rampant discrimination, he believes that humans are connected and that building a more inclusive, more equitable society is
8: imperative.
9: Hey, listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylis, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in-person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services services to send us a message, or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylis is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash services and get yourself a copy of Darylis' book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook, too. Happy learning.
0: Charlotte Burroughs, designated by President Biden as the chair of the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, EEOC, on January twentieth, 2021, has served as a commissioner of the EEOC for multiple terms. Prior to that, Chair Burroughs served as Associate Deputy Attorney General at the United States Department of Justice, as well as General Counsel for Civil and Constitutional Rights to Senator Edward M. Kennedy. Chair Burroughs shared about the importance of recognizing the interconnectedness of humanity. But before that, she spoke about the Lily Ledbetter Act and how one particular woman, Lily Ledbetter, fought for pay equity for others, even though she knew that under the law, she would never be eligible for back pay from her previous employer after having been shortchanged for decades. How do you make sense of individual versus communal commitment, right? Like what is the incentive for a person to fight for justice when they can't benefit? And I'm just so curious, your take on individuality versus society as it applied to this case, but even more broadly.
6: Well, I have to say, I
0: sort of see that as a
10: false choice. I think that first of all, with respect to the Ledbetter bill, that was a, it's not that every piece of legislation will end up that way, first of all. That was a particular, I won't say unique, but a particular aspect of that that is certainly not the case with every broader issue. But I also think that not to say that it isn't important to look at the individual, but it is also important to understand that as individuals, we are connected to each other and that that is an important value an important way to look at things. It's just the reality. And so there is no one who here on this earth who has not benefited from other people. And there is no one on this earth who's really going to feel fulfilled if they don't give something to others as well. That's the way we are. I could not say more strongly, like in what world is it in our interest not to create something better for the next generation i certainly when i am retired and not doing this and sort of watching and applauding what other people are doing i want to be able to go to the doctor and have someone who is well-educated and probably younger than me if i'm elderly and helping and able to do that and willing to and as we go through our lives You know, even if it's only like, hey, when I'm retired, I want someone paying into the social security system. Mm -hmm. So I better make sure they have the education to get a job that will do it.
0: Later in our interview, Chair Burroughs expounded on the concept of interconnectedness. There's no one here who is not connected in a thousand different ways to everyone
10: else. And the pandemic is a perfect example of that. You can look at things as an individual and you must in order to help us understand what's necessary for the community but you can't stop there it's it's a false lens i think and in no other area maybe more so than when you talk about civil rights because at its essence civil rights is about making sure that each of us as individuals and collectively have that space to realize our full opportunity and be respected and have our human dignity respected and realized, right? That is the kind of thing that quintessentially you can only do as a society. You can't do it as an individual. And so I I really want to challenge us to think about that reality. None, None of us comes into the world alone or lives completely unconnected to other people. And if we really want to thrive individually, we have to look at the whole
0: Along with the social motivation to create belonging for ourselves and others, each of us also has an intrinsic inner need to feel a part of something bigger than ourselves and bigger than our own egos. Damon West is a college professor, internationally known keynote speaker, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of The Coffee Bean, A Simple Lesson to Create Positive Change, which Forbes listed in the top 20 books you need to read to crush 2020. But that hasn't always been his path. Damon's autobiography, The Change Agent, How a Former College QB Sentenced to Life in Prison, Transformed His World vividly tells how Damon positively transformed a Texas maximum security prison from a pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. He shared with me that no matter who we are, where we come from, or what we've done, or what's been done to us, we all crave a feeling of belonging.
11: At the core of being human, at the core of being human, even living in prison, I can tell you, Daryl East, that all we want to do, we just want to belong and be loved. That's what all humans want at the core when you get past all the other garbage.
0: It is incumbent upon each of us to invest in creating cultures of belonging. In order to do that, we have to see the value in every person, identity, culture, and community, which brings us to the fourth tier in Maslow's hierarchy, esteem needs. Maslow conceived of our esteem needs as pertaining to two different aspects, our esteem for ourselves and our esteem for others. I asked Deb if she noticed any patterns among her clients.
1: This is with almost every single person. No one feels worthy. And it's breaking through and helping people see how worthy they are. You're worthy just the fact that you're here on this earth drawing breath. Like, come on. Like, it's a miracle. We're miracles.
0: So how do you communicate that to people in a way that lands? You usually say it like that. And then we
1: dig into what's all the things that are making you like that you grew up because it all starts, right? Most of the time there's stuff from when we're kids let's weed through like, okay, when did you first start feeling this way or feeling that way or having these experiences? And then, okay, let's clear them out and let's work for them and let's let go of those limiting beliefs and let's look for the evidence of how awesome you are. It's there. You just don't think that these things are awesome.
0: Deb said that she hoped that, through their work together, her clients would acquire a belief in their own inherent value.
1: I hope that they emerge with that they fall in love with themselves and that they realize how valuable they are and how much the world needs them and that they get out of their way to go do things that light them up, no matter what anybody else
0: thinks. Theoretically, everyone ought to know they have value. But in order for that reality to be lived out, we have to put theory into practice. Part of building healthy self-esteem involves practicing self-care. And to be entirely honest, I'm not very good at self-care, which is why I asked some of the people I interviewed this season to tell me about their self-care practices in the hopes that I might be able to implement some of what works for others. Here's A.C.
4: So self-care for me looks a lot like meditation and self-reflection I am an introvert so I need to be by myself to recharge and it, it is in that alone time that I'm able to really go through my restorative process I am alone but not lonely and so that is a huge part of how I recharge so that I can continue doing the work which is interesting because what that brings to mind for me is the level of Exposure or access that people might expect of someone who does this work or someone who is open about their identity or who identifies as a subject matter expert and says, Hey, you can ask me all the questions. The level of access that people might expect as a result of that and how that may or may not be in keeping with what it is that you need in order to be able to do the work, if that makes any sense. For me, I need privacy and alone time. And I think maybe that's the difference between having influence and being an influencer. And so it is my desire. I was having this conversation with my son just the other night and he really just hit the nail on the head. It is my desire to have influence, but I don't desire to be an influencer. I don't want you in every aspect of my life all the time. I don't want unfettered access to all parts of my being. I want to be able to close off and shut off and have that privacy. Yeah, that's what that looks like for me in terms of recharging.
0: For Emma, self-care also involves recharging. She builds recharging time into every workday and walked me through how she structures her days as someone who works from home.
5: I had to be very intentional of when I was leaving the house, how many times a day would I leave the house where would I go for my exercise? Where would I go for social interaction? I had to very clearly identify name and schedule the gaps that for me as an extrovert, I needed to fill. So I was clear, I needed a space for movement. I needed a space for social connection. I needed space with nature and fresh air. And I needed fully disconnected time, not walking while listening to a podcast or not walking and talking on the phone, like fully disconnected time. What does that look like for you?
0: What do you do in your disconnected time? Is that a stupid question? But <laughs> <laughs> you're like, I, I am being, and I'm like, well, what do you do when you're being?
5: <laughs> <laughs> so funny, right? What do you think I do?
0: <laughs> I don't know. Well- I picture bubble baths and like Meditation. I don't know. I don't know.
5: (laughs) Well, here's one of the misconceptions. One of the things I talk about with my clients often is my beingness and my stillness is 15 to 20 minute increments. Maybe it's 10 minute increments. And it could be walking without my headphones, without my phone on my physical body. Like I do a lot of this is how you know my dad was a hippie. I will literally touch a tree. Like full hug tree moment, tree hug moment. So here for it. Because just the textile, the tactile connection to something that is not a screen and not an electronic is very important. Oftentimes, it's a 10-minute guided meditation. Super simple. Go on YouTube, look up a free one. I used the app Calm. So walking without it, meditation. Sometimes it's literally just petting my cat and staring into her eyes. But it works. Or it's asking my husband for like a full minute long hug. Just like, hold me and I'm just going to keep my eyes closed and be still. So those are a few things. I'm not great at bubble baths, so that's not really a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's because my bathtub is not big enough.
0: In case it isn't obvious, I have incorrect assumptions around what self-care entails. But that doesn't mean my assumptions are always off base. Ironically, Travell Anderson, an award-winning journalist, social curator, and world changer who has dedicated their career to centering the stories of those in the margins, gray spaces, and the intersections of life, and who was named to the Roots 2020 list of the 100 most influential African Americans, told me this of their self-care practices.
12: I practice self-care by saying no. I practice self-care by building a community around me that is going to affirm and support all of my decisions. I have a community of Black and Brown, queer and trans folks, many who work in media, who, you know, we got our group chats, we've got our individual communication methods, who are that level set or level reset that I need to keep going. And they're also those folks who tell me, okay, girl, you're getting a little spacey, honey. You might need to slow down. You're starting to forget some things. You might want to slow down. I, I should also say, I love TV. I love musicals. I will pop on a musical. I have a tub now at my new apartment. So I take baths weekly at this point. And never, never did it before. So yeah, it's just about taking, taking some time for me, taking time for fun.
0: Christina Glickman is the founder of the Extra Love Army. She's a TEDx speaker, podcaster, and author of the best selling book, Extra The Art of Being. And she had some powerful questions that she asked people to ask themselves as a way of assessing whether or not they're practicing self care and conserving their energy output.
8: First of all, it's, are you showing up for yourself? And by that, I really mean like, do you get up in the morning and make yourself a cup of coffee and you like take a deep breath before you start your day? Do you make sure that you're not saying yes to lunch dates with people that actually drag you down and suck away all your energy? Are you saying yes more to things that you know will fill your soul versus I should and I have to. It starts with auditing your day and you look at it and I call this the ick test. What parts of my day do I not want to do, right? And again, I say this from privilege. We have to work. There's junk to do we don't want to do. But I mean, holistically, am I stacking my calendar, doing things that have the outward appearance that either make me feel valuable or that it looks good to somebody else or get very real with your energy reserve and like your emotional bank account? Are you doing things that make you feel good? And if you're not, why? I'm doing that because I have to pay my bills. I'm doing that because I don't want dirty laundry, you know, get very clear. I now can look at my calendar and I'm like, this all feels pretty good. I get to spend time with you today. That's a yes I will say all the time, right? It makes me feel good.
0: And to Christina's point about privilege, those who have been or are being marginalized or disenfranchised may not have the option of saying no to others and yes to themselves. And this goes back to the lower levels of the hierarchy. Without our basic survival, safety, love, and belonging needs being met, we lack the space to focus on cultivating esteem for ourselves and others. But assuming you do have that space, self-care enables self-actualization and esteem. Tomar Pearson-Brown told me that for her, self-care means slowing down. Tamar is the Associate Dean for Equity and Inclusive Excellence and a Clinical Associate Professor of Law at University of Pittsburgh School of Law. She's also Director of the Health Law Clinic, which operates as a medical-legal partnership with UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh.
6: There's so much pressure to do, 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 and go, go, go. But when I stop and remind myself To be human with this person who's talking to me or be human with this person who's asked me to help them think through a challenge that they're facing, it really forces me to slow down my practice, which I think also helps me to be a better practitioner overall. When we are in fast think mode, we're more likely to trip up on our implicit biases, on our assumptions. When we slow down and we're able to be more reflective, we're able to make new connections, we're able to check our our biases and, and bring the curiosity, right? We're able to approach challenges from a variety of perspectives rather than from the perspective that has the deepest worn in groove in our minds. And so because problem solving, which is the bulk of what lawyers do, requires creativity of thinking, When I remember to bring my empathy to my clients, it slows me down, and then I can access all of those other tools.
0: Insofar as building esteem is concerned, it's not just what we do that matters. It's also what we don't do or what we stop doing. As a recovered anorexic and bulimic, I can tell you that nothing I've ever done for myself has been as loving or as esteem building as stopping my eating disorder behaviors and getting into recovery. For Damon as well, entering into recovery has been the most affirming, most character building decision he ever made. And it's a decision he continues to reaffirm
11: daily. Program recovery gives us tools to live a normal, healthy, serene life with. Because in a program recovery, we understand that we don't control a lot of things going on in the world. I'm an addict. So, as an addict in recovery, I had to deal with control issues. I thought I controlled all these people to manipulate people and do what I want to do. But the reality is I control four things. I control what I think, what I say, what I feel, and what I do. These are really the four things I control. But if I work on those four things and work on myself and work on my life and becoming a better person, that keeps my side of the street clean. And it's so important for me to keep my side of the street. I can't tell my neighbor to clean up their side of the street. And if you want to you have trash in front of your house, that's fine. But I know this. That if you don't keep your side of the street clean, you, your house, your property, whatever it is, looks bad. And you know what? You are your own sanitation worker. I tell people all the time that one of the most important jobs in all of society is the garbage man, the sanitation worker. Because if garbage men tomorrow decided to quit doing their jobs they say, hey, we're going to go on strike, we're not picking up the trash anymore doesn't take long before society breaks down because no one wants to live in a world where trash is everywhere, right? When no one wants to live in a world where you can't see houses because garbage fills up the streets and in your own life, you are your own sanitation worker. And if you don't take out the trash and garbage, you know, clutters up your house and in front of your house, that's on you because I have to be my own sanitation worker. And that's what I do every day. I try to keep my side of the street clean and keeping my side of the street clean means every single night, I'm asking God, what I believe God to be, because everybody gets to pick their own version of God, is that, hey, I'm saying, hey, God, look, man, let me, get, let me have a conversation. Was I a good person today? You know, what did I do to put back in the stream of life? Do I owe someone an apology? Because if I have apologies, I gotta make my, I've got to make my amends. I, that's garbage. I don't want to hold that in. But I always ask, do I owe someone forgiveness? We all want to be forgiven for things we've done, but are we prepared to forgive others for the things they do to us, especially the people that have never asked for forgiveness? But we have to. Because I would argue that the opposite of forgiveness is resentment. And when you have a resentment, that's bottled up hate. And hate corrodes, the container is contained in. And if you keep these resentments in, it'll eat you up from the inside out. A resentment is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. You know, it's crazy when we hold these resentments inside. So honestly, dear Elise, every night I let God have my resentments. I let him have the hate, the anger, because I can't take that into a new day. Because if I take that into a new day, now yesterday's trash, it's clogging up, everything's going to happen in my day, I've got to start new every single day because this is a one day at a time type deal.
0: One day at a time, we can assess our actions and attitudes, learn from our mistakes, let go of what doesn't serve us, and move forward. And doing that is the essence of learning and growth, which brings us to the fifth level of Maslow's hierarchy, cognitive needs. This includes our needs for mental stimulation, learning, and the exploration of our curiosity. I'd like to read you an excerpt from an article in the International Journal of Health Services, and we'll put a link to that full article in the show notes. But here it is. Basic educational expertise and skills, including fundamental knowledge, reasoning ability, emotional self-regulation, and interactional abilities are critical components of health. Moreover, education is a fundamental social determinant of health, an upstream cause of health. So that's what the International Journal of Health Services had to say. And overall, research shows that expanding our knowledge has a positive impact on our bodies, minds, and overall quality of life. And it's likely that part of that impact has to do with the actual brain stimulation and activation that comes from learning. And part of it is because education leads to an expansion of opportunities, improved self-esteem, and greater access to the empowerment that comes with information. When we know better, we can do better, which explains why the higher one's level of educational attainment, the higher their likelihood of adopting healthy habits, and the lower their likelihood of engaging in health destroying habits, such as smoking or excessive drinking. Also, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, education can open us up to the experiences of others, which can then expand our capacity to love. To that point, One of the most powerful forms of learning is unlearning. Jolly Good Ginger has unlearned a lot between now and when he was in his early teens. A well-known social justice advocate, Jolly was raised in the mountains of North Carolina in a racist household in an all-white town. Growing up, he was taught racism and bigotry at home, in church, at school, everywhere, When, as a teenager, Jolly realized he'd been taught hate and lies, he made it his mission to expose white supremacy to the world and to actively fight to dismantle it from within the white community. He is on the board of directors for two nonprofit organizations, Family United and Justice Reform Group. As a national-level activist, Jolly travels the country and attends rallies, marches, and protests gives speeches at various venues and has garnered a social media following of over 1 million subscribers.
13: One of the most eye-opening moments for me is seeing that there's two different Americas. I remember I was about 13 or 14 and I, and I was watching on a VHS tape, I was watching some old interviews with Malcolm X and El-Hajmalik El-Shabazz, right? And I saw this one interview where the guy interviewing him I said, well, what's your last name? It's not X, what's your, what's your real last name? Malcolm I so I don't know. I don't know. Because the slave master took my family's name and gave us his. And then my dad had that name and gave it to his son, who gave it to me. And I, I don't know my family's name. And he was like, well, come on, what is it? Because I don't know. I don't know. That's the slave name. I don't know my own name. To the casual listener, that was just a conversation. To me, the 13, 14-year-old kid, it literally blew my mind. Here's why. Growing up in the South... There is a certain philosophy that's beaten to your head from the time you're knee-high to a grasshopper, and that is your family name is everything. Make your family name proud. Uphold your family name. As long as the next generation does better than the last generation, then you are improving your family name. Literally, everything in life is about family name, family name, family name. And I believe that. I knew in my heart that it was important that no matter what I did, don't disgrace my family name. And then this man on TV just said he don't know his family name. It it was like, I can't explain. It seems like such a small moment, but it was a big, huge moment for me. It was like, oh, my fucking God, you don't have a family name. It was like, how is this possible? With family names being so important, how could this man not have one? That can't be real. And it was kind of my introduction to this other America that I just didn't realize. By that age, I had already realized racism exists, but I hadn't really realized it's a whole other fucking world. I would read books and you know, read Martin Luther King's speeches. And then I found out he had a there was a biography about him. So I got that. Then I found out who Malcolm X was, which I kind of knew, but I, what I had always been told of Malcolm X was he was the evil guy who hated white people. And I actually started studying Malcolm X so that I could be convinced that my dad was right. It's very hard to just abandon a lifelong of one idea. So I was like, you know what? If I read that Malcolm X really hated white people and wants to kill all the whities, then maybe you know my dad wasn't so crazy. Then you read Malcolm X and you listen to his speeches and, wow, that's not what he was saying on. It's just this, it's this eye-opener moment.
0: For Jolly, the quest to become educated about the experiences of others and to unlearn the racism with which he was indoctrinated early on in life has inspired him to spend the majority of his personal and professional time fighting against systemic racism. And one of many areas in which systemic racism remains a prevalent and corrosive force is in the American educational system. Certain people and populations are being denied the right to the same cognitive pursuits as their more privileged counterparts. Timothy Welbeck, the director for the Center of Anti-Racism Research and an assistant professor of instruction at Temple University, a civil rights attorney, a scholar of law, race, and culture, a writer, and a hip-hop artist, has seen these disparities in opportunities and access firsthand.
14: I attended Morehouse College for undergrad, and that was foundational for me, both in my education and just in my experiences as a whole. I not only made some lifelong friends, but was exposed to ideas and and theories and philosophies and just information that helped not only expand my perspective, but also give me better contextualization for the world that we live in. And it was there during my time at Morehouse, I began working for an educational nonprofit in the Atlanta area, and that helped to foment my my passion for educational equity and then also bringing divergent approaches and experiences to the classroom setting. And then from there, the educational nonprofit was housed by a private school in Atlanta. And so the idea was that they were serving underserved children within the Atlanta area. And during the week, we would do educational programming in their actual schools after school. But then over the summer, And sometimes on the weekends during the school year, we did educational programming at the private school that housed the nonprofit. And so it was working with the educational nonprofit and then also the school that helped just to cement my understanding of just how to go about doing some of this work and also being able to cater to different audiences. Because what ended up happening is after I graduated from undergrad, I began working full time for the nonprofit and i taught a class at the school. So the school has students from across the Atlanta area, but it was mostly populated by the most affluent children in the Atlanta area. Some of these children come from families whose money goes back to slavery. So during the day, I'm teaching them. And then in the evenings and then on the weekends, I'm working with some children from the urban parts of Atlanta. Some of them are getting excellent education. Some of them are are not. Some of them were from parts of the poorest parts of the city and things like that. So even early on, I got some of that perspective.
0: It might be helpful to provide a sense of perspective about the correlation between educational opportunities and social outcomes. Here's Damon again.
11: I heard the statistic that less than 2% of the teachers in America are Black men. And when I heard the statistic, it startled me. It blew me away because I grew up in a predominantly Black town where Black men were everywhere in the in the public school setting. But less than 2% of the teachers in America are Black men in public education. But I read a a study, a John Hopkins study that said that if a Black boy has a Black male teacher between the years of second and fifth grade, he's 40% more likely to graduate high school and and he's 20% more likely to go to college or be a teacher because he's seen that it can be done. He sees himself inside that man. But when I started thinking about it more and more, I started drawing parallel tracks of what's going on in America. It's almost like a, a tragedy of two systems. The Public education system and the correctional systems in America. Because where you have that less than 2% of the teachers in America are black men, almost half the prison population in America is black men. So there's parallel tracks here. And I thought to myself, if black men only make up about six and a half percent of the population in America, and they're less than two percent of our teachers in America, but they're half the prison population, and you're having trouble finding black men to become elementary school teachers. Why don't you let me go look inside of a prison and find black men that can become teachers one day? Because I was fortunate enough to be taught by some black men when I was in prison about things like racism, about disparities in the system, about social justice. And I heard through these conversations when I listened and learned, because as a white man, that's what I had to do. I had to listen to what a black man was telling me about these systems. I heard that racism was about the imbalance of power. And that means that one race has more power over another race. They can write laws to affect where you live, the kind of schools you go to, the America you grow up in. And in America, white people have that power, Daryl, least. And that's a fact. When a white friend tells me, hey, Damon, that person of color was being racist or saying something racist, I help my friend out because definitions are important and words matter. What my white friend is talking about is prejudice. Prejudice looks like racism, but it has no power attached to it. And what I've learned from those conversations is that, hey, yeah, Damon, you know what? White people do have that power. And what we would like is for you to transfer some of that power back to us, to our communities. But we don't necessarily need you standing over our shoulders when you do it. Let us fix our own communities. So my initiative called Mr. Coffee Bean is to find incarcerated black men that do not have a serious criminal offense, because I have found that that pretty much every state in America will allow certain kind of felons to be teachers. Certified public school teachers. Now, these are felonies that are not, you know, felonies that someone's hurt someone or, or messed with a child or a woman or violent criminal. These are felonies like my felony. But my felony says I could still be a teacher in most states because it was an organized crime charge. But the problem is that most states have a rule in the books that say that you have to be done with your sentence before you can apply to be certified in, in a public school setting. So what I'm trying to do in the state of Louisiana is back that up to about two years after you're out of prison that you can become a public school teacher. And my initiative is this. I'm in the prison system right now in Louisiana looking for candidates. Five men for the first corps, five black men that are incarcerated in Louisiana. They have the kind of felony conviction that fits within their government code already to be a teacher. And once we identify these five men, we transfer them to one prison. And in that prison, I'll bring McNeese State University, the partner university in. My foundation, the Be a Coffee Bean Foundation, pays for these men to get an education bachelor's degree from McNeese State University for the last four years they're in prison. And when they walk out, I'm waiting for them at the gate because the reentry is a minefield. Reentry, so many people fall back into recidivism, which is the rate you go back into prison. At about 75% of the people that come out of prison go back in the first three years, depending on which state you're talking about. So my plan is to be there waiting for them at the gate, these five black men when they get out of prison and, and have the tools they need to walk through that minefield. I tell people all the time, Daryl, at least that, that landmines are only dangerous if you don't know where they are, because if you had a map where the mines are, you could walk around them. I am that map. And I'll grab these guys by the hands. And, and I, now I've got a used car for you. I've got a wardrobe for you to teach in. I've got a place for you to live till you get a job. First two years you're out of prison and I've got your student teacher salary paid for for the first couple of years you're out of prison until you can become a teacher. And I just want you to go into the toughest elementary schools in the state of Louisiana, the underperforming, at risk, uh, majority black elementary school, schools that people have written off, places where the crime rate is the highest. You go be that positive black male role model in that community that's lacking positive black male role models. I'm trying to transfer some of my power back to the Black community that way. In a nutshell, that's what I'm doing right now.
0: Every person of every demographic ought to be able to learn from a wide variety of people, some of whom look like them and some of whom don't. Having said that, learning shouldn't be restricted to the classroom, nor should we misunderstand cognitive expansion as solely a matter of information. A huge part of expanding our minds involves being open to evolving beyond who we've been and what we have previously
9: believed. Hey, listeners, Zach here. Darylis and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148. Just leave a message with your question or send us a note through our website, www.DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts, and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening.
0: Alexei Altunin is an assistant professor of management information systems at Temple University's Fox School of Business. He has over 20 years experience in digital innovation, both as an academic and an entrepreneur. And he told me about how humbling it can be to recognize our previous ignorance.
3: Sometimes I feel very embarrassed when I remember what kind of things I have said back in the days. I don't repeat those here. But on the other hand, I feel that because I feel embarrassed now about some things, like perhaps I have learned something here. And I argue that the person who doesn't feel embarrassed about something that we have done back in the days probably hasn't just learned anything. This is my underlying attitude that things will get better slowly. They take a lot of effort, but things are getting better. So we should remain optimistic and keep
9: working on it.
0: The more we learn, the more we're able to change. After Jolly walked me through his journey from being someone who once used the N-word unapologetically to being someone who is now an unapologetic advocate for social justice, he had this to say.
13: You don't go to the gym and lift weights and only lift weights that are comfortable for you and then get bigger muscles. You have to be uncomfortable. And same thing's true for your mind.
0: According to Maslow, the next level on the needs, aka motivation hierarchy, are aesthetic needs. And while that can refer to our natural appreciation for beautiful things, it can also relate to our broader surroundings. In 1982, the year before I was born, social scientists James Wilson and George Kelling introduced the broken windows theory. Essentially, Wilson and Kelling's position was that one broken window in a neighborhood would soon lead to many more broken windows, they theorized that because the presence of a single broken window conveyed a lack of care and decreased social engagement and participation within a neighborhood, those neighborhoods which didn't repair a broken window would soon be in for more damage and more disrepair. Although there have been many problems with the implementation of the broken windows theory, namely zero tolerance policing policies and the forcible removal of unhoused individuals, especially from affluent areas, the theory itself has veracity. That's why aesthetic damage is a problem, and also conversely, why things like community gardens and neighborhood street cleanups have a demonstrated positive effect on community engagement, crime rates, and overall social cohesion. I would also suggest that our aesthetic needs go beyond beautiful things and even beautiful people and extend to the need for representation, Seeing a wide variety of identities and experiences helps expand the variety of available narratives, exposes us to different perspectives, and enables people to see themselves in stories or in positions of influence. And increased representation has also been shown to improve mental health and self-confidence and to reduce suicidal ideation and feelings of otherness among historically marginalized populations. We have aesthetic needs that go beyond appreciating beauty and tie into our overall capacity to appreciate ourselves and others as well as our surroundings. You've likely heard the saying, what surround us shapes us. Well, investing in shaping society is a huge part of meeting the seventh need on Maslow's hierarchy, which is the need for transcendence. Rachel Lyons is the executive director at Space for Humanity, a nonprofit organization which aims to make spaceflight available as a way to expand human perspectives. She's the former vice chair of the board of directors of Students for the Exploration of Development of Space USA. And she's also my cousin. Here's what Rachel had
5: to say. There's an Einstein quote that drives us and drives me and drives our mission, and that is we can't solve the problems we've created with the same level of thinking that's created them. And so the space perspective or that perspective of seeing our earth from space allows us to like transcend the paradigms that we exist in. It allows us to like transcend our viewpoints and actually see all of these challenges from the actual perspective that they're happening on. And there's a lot of tools that can get us there. There's a lot of tools that can help us expand our perspectives and I think that fundamentally expanding our perspectives is the most important thing that we can do right now as a civilization. It is essential. I think we would, all of our the challenges that we now face, we would actually be able to transcend.
0: Rachel spoke about the connection between physically rising above the status quo on Earth and the ability to look down and transcend our previous paradigms and perspectives. And she shared that this effect, known as the overview effect, has been shown to be one way that human beings can expand our capacity to evolve beyond the problems of the present and possibly even the problems of the past. As exciting as space exploration and other massive initiatives are, and as necessary as large-scale change may be, we can also make smaller daily shifts in our actions and attitudes. Here's Tomar again.
6: I believe that we should do everything that we can to leave the world a little bit better than we found it. And my hope through this work is that I leave everyone that I interact with feeling a little bit better about themselves than they did before they started, that I leave every problem that I try to solve a little bit better for my having laid a hand on it than it was before. I want to do my part. You know, I think all of the great people who have really changed our world and have inspired us to do justice They got in with their gift. And so as I continue to try to strive to find my gift, to figure out what I have to offer, I'm motivated by the hope that I can do my work and leave the people that I touch through my work a little bit better off than than they were before, before the interaction.
0: Will Bubenick is the founder and CEO of Nebula Media Group, whose mission it is to ensure that websites are accessible so that people with disabilities can access them. From audits and fixes to training and coaching, Nebula Media Group provides customized accessibility solutions so companies can attain, maintain, and sustain a true accessibility and compliance program at their organization. His strategic business partner, Tanner Gears, is president and founder of Accessibility Officer, a data-driven disability inclusion firm that helps companies drive ability D&I and maximize ROI. Tanner also serves as a board member for Menus for All and recently co-authored Foresight Augmented Reality's solution proposal for the U.S. Department of Transportation's Inclusive Design Challenge. He is also a U.S. Paralympian. World Championship team member. And he pointed out that transcendence doesn't have to be viewed as a massive paradigm shift. It can be far more incremental and, in fact, is often more sustainable that way.
3: It's ultimately a journey, right? The journey is the destination for that. Then I am learning new things every single day. And that's the important thing is that if you're willing to at least take that journey and start learning about the inclusion space for people with disabilities. You're going so much farther than a lot of people in the space. And it's truly an education and a transformation that you'll see over time. Getting 1% better every day is much better than trying to strive for 100% in one day.
0: In order for us to get better, we have to know where we're going, while also recognizing that we are not the beginning and end of existence. Here's Travel again.
11: We
12: are all part of a collective. We are all part of a continuous story that began back in the day, back in the motherland with the storytellers, the griots of our communities who carried on our stories as a people and now today live through the work of you and I and everybody else who are at the core storytellers. Is that type of stuff that keeps me going, that affirms all of the decisions that I've made in the past, even the ones where I was like, girl, you about to get fired, girl, you better calm. down. girl, what are you doing? But like, that is why I do all of this. Because yes, it's about the work, but it also is about unlocking that small part in many of our minds where we hold our imagination. And so many of us Based on our life experience, we've been told that we have to stop dreaming, that we have to stop imagining the best for ourselves and those around us. And I reject that. I'm going to dream and imagine a world to the day I die. And it's because it's not about me manifesting that world necessarily while I'm on this earth. But it is about ensuring that those things that I'm thinking of are possible, continue, and somebody else is able to pick them up. If I'm not able to get to the promised land, I want somebody that comes after me, who reads the work that I'm doing, to be able to make it to the promised land. Because in them making it, I will have made it already.
0: For many of us, transcendence is linked with legacy which is what Rocky and Jeff Maynard spoke about when they spoke about the patterns they're invested in transcending, not just for themselves, but for future generations. Rocky is a licensed financial coach, speaker, and workshop facilitator who previously worked in human resources. Jeff is a financial services professional and full-time entrepreneur who, prior to his transition to entrepreneurship, worked in IT telecommunications. And prior to that, He served eight and a half years in the United States Navy. They've been married since October of 2011. Here's Jeff.
14: There's a a much better way to live life. And when I understood that and started dusting off my dreams and my goals, and then we started aligning our dreams and our goals together, that's when things started to align for us. She found a quote the other day that said, your children will chase their dreams Not because you told them to, but because you chased yours. They watched you chase yours. And I never want my children to give up on their hopes and dreams and what they want in life and sell their soul for a few dollars because I was there. I was living it. It almost cost me my marriage because I was selling my soul and my life for a few dollars and it wasn't even making me happy. I was so unhappy We don't
0: have to reach the point of unhappiness to transcend our current situations, whether at work or elsewhere. Shauna Hawking described her transition to creating her own consulting business as leaving a career she loved to do something that had begun calling to her soul. Shauna is a thought leader, keynote speaker, and writer with 20 years experience working in leadership development. And she's the author of One Bold Move a Day and the host of the One Bold Move a Day podcast. I love that the way that you framed that, Shauna, you weren't pointing to anything that wasn't effective, but maybe pointing to something that it was like time for now or a a new opportunity or an expansion opportunity. And I really I think some stories are that, and other stories are stories of pain perpetuating that movement or that transition.
5: Darylise, I think that's a really important point that many people leave because things are bad. And I firmly believe that you can love something and leave it in order to grow. And oftentimes when I have found myself running away from something when it was difficult, it showed up again later on in a different format. And so The advice that I give to women that I mentor or to clients is to run towards something and it just changes the way that you approach it when you do.
0: It does feel different to run towards something than to run away from something. And it also feels different to move from, let's say, striving to meet our basic physiological needs to meeting our security needs than it feels to move from self-actualization to community beautification to transcendence. And similarly, there's a difference as we rise up from one level to the next in our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging capacities, skills, and abilities as well. Here's AC again.
4: I think that there are tiers that we go up when we're looking at inclusion and acceptance. And so, depending on where an organization lies, it dictates what the next step would be and what I'm hoping to to gain there. If I'm going into an environment where they are hostile toward LGBTQ folks, then the goal might be tolerance, in which case, if I was at an organization where they were beyond tolerance, that obviously wouldn't be the goal. But if we are in a hostile environment, then tolerance, you know, are you willing to even tolerate my existence would be the goal. If I'm in an environment where they have reached tolerance, but they've not gone beyond that, then I would be trying to move from tolerance up to acceptance. Can we accept in a meaningful way? And then if, if you've reached an organization where they've already reached a point of acceptance of difference, which is I'm able to see the commonalities between us and I can see and I can accept that, then we might be working towards celebration of difference. Mm. It is one thing to reach a point where you say, you know, we are all the same and that's beautiful. And that's really great if you used to be at a place of tolerance and now you're at, I can see myself in you, that's beautiful. But there is something beyond that and that is celebration of difference. And that's when we're able to say, we are in fact different and that is beautiful there are parts of me that I don't see in you and parts of you that I don't see in me. And that is what makes you a value add. And that is what makes this relationship so meaningful. Then that, that is the goal. It is always my desire to push an organization to that next level and understanding that that's going to be uncomfortable. I tell clients all the time, discomfort is not trauma. And so, It's going to be uncomfortable to stretch to that next place, but that's what we must do. That's what we must do to push through that discomfort and get to that next tier.
0: While there are tiers when it comes to our diversity, equity, and inclusion capabilities, and while there are tiers when it comes to meeting our needs and motivations, there should be no hierarchy when it comes to identity. Ideally, no one would be valued any more or less than anyone else, and we could all come to see how at the core, we're far more alike than we are different. I asked Stu about his experiences working with a diverse coaching clientele. I'm curious, when you're working with someone, you talked about wanting to support people and creating the lives that they want to lead, but... I don't know. Isn't there a diversity of what people want to do with their lives and people's values and what's important? So, I'm wondering, like, how do you kind of like distill that and support people in realizing their individual and collective goals?
3: So, this is not a cop out answer, but it's both yes and no in terms of whether or not there is a diversity in what people are looking for. So, real quick, no is that the end of the day, people just want to be happy. They want to feel secure. They want to feel happy. They want to know that their needs are taken care of. And my belief is everybody, when they're really working towards like a vision and a purpose and some type of plan that's bigger than themselves, they want to have some type of legacy for their time on this earth. Like they want to be remembered in some way. And so, in that way, no, I actually don't experience there being much diversity at all in terms of what people are looking for. Where the diversity comes in is the how you get there. And that becomes a super tricky thing to tease out in certain cases, because oftentimes what I find is what people want or what they think they want is really just their perception of reality or their reality through their ego. And their ego is the part of their brain that's experts would say it's your most unevolved version of yourself. It's your reptilian brain. It's the piece of you that only wants to keep you alive is only concerned about preservation. It doesn't care about your happiness, your health, your wellness, anything, it just wants to keep you safe. And with that causes you to filter everything through your traumas, through societal expectations of yourself, your expectations of yourself, your mom and dad's expectations of you. And so thinking of all the clients I have under contract in this moment, I have people that are playing humongous games in the financial space. They're looking to up their annual income to 500000 a year, and they're going to do it. Like that's the trajectory they are on. And I have a client who the battle is more about being a consistent contributor in their place of employment without being so burnt out in a completely toxic culture. And those are two very different goals. But at the end of the day, it's about happiness and it's about belonging and it's about feeling valued. That's what I work with people on actually is fulfillment, the love, the belonging, and in in most cases, legacy to some degree.
0: Wherever we are in our lives, including our DEI journey, let's commit to moving just one step higher on the hierarchy of needs. If you've got your basic physiological and safety needs met, work to cultivate love and belonging. And if you feel loved, move towards building esteem for yourself and for others or taking an active role in community beautification or being of service. This world needs us, all of us, and the more invested we are in growing our capacities and giving back from a place of abundance, the more we begin to repair the damage of the past while creating an infinitely better future at work and in the world.
2: Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can assure should demand. Let's embrace one another, single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through?
0: Thank you to this episode's guests. Deb Atella, Stu Cranes, A.C. Foulkes, Emma B.F., Alita Miranda-Wolf, Anel Duarte, Cameron Footman, Chair Charlotte Burroughs, Damon West, Trevelle Anderson, Christina Glickman, Tomar Pearson-Brown, Jolly Good Ginger, Timothy Welbeck, Alexei Altoonen, Rachel Lyons, Will Bubinek, Tanner Gears, Rocky Maynor, Jeff Mayner, and Shauna Hawking, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me dara Lee Lyons with Azaria Keyes, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant. Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant. Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager. Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor. Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, Audio Technician and Consultant. Stuart Krainz, production and development assistant, and Sonny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Darylise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, Pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.